Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and back in the studio this week is former England and Lions fly half Rob Andrew. Hello Rob. Brian, how are you? Uh, not too bad. Um, probably feeling a bit better than John Kingston who has agreed to leave Quinns by mutual consent I understand after the London Irish did the double at the stoop. Probably inevitable this given that Quinns over two or three years now have not quite got to where they looked like getting, especially with a lot of talent. We've got a tweet from at Friends of the Stoop with the news of John Kingston off at Quinns end of the season. Do you think it will fix the current poor form moving forward or is it a much bigger problem than the director of rugby? Well, let's take the issue of poor form. This isn't a recent matter. No, I think, I mean, obviously... uh Go back a long way with Kingo. Kingo was my first captain yep. at Cambridge University in 1982. The coach um, for first year I had in when you were at Newcastle Professional Rugby at Richmond. And, and Kingo was in charge at Richmond. And uh, in 1999, both Richmond and Newcastle lost our owners at the same time. Yeah. In March 1999, uh, Newcastle found a new owner in Dave Thompson. And, and Richmond uh, didn't replace Ashley Levette. Uh, and, and that's 20-odd years ago. So, mm. look. Kingo's been around the block. Uh, he knows the score. He'll be hugely disappointed, frustrated. Uh, been at Quinn's a long time as a number two. Got the got the number one gig, and and I you know look. I think there were probably question marks at the time when Connor left to go and do the Italy job. Was Kingo the right man to step up as a number as a number one? It doesn't always work out. Number two's going to number ones. Um, and it and it hasn't worked. That that's the bottom line. And you know, we've had this discussion before a little bit about you, you don't need to be behind the scenes to realise there's a problem. And when you have a performance, the performances have been poor for some time. When you have a performance like like against London Irish at home, then there's something wrong. And and clearly, it's it sort of questions the decision making a bit further up the club probably when contract extensions were given out in January and three months later you're having to effectively terminate the head coach's contract. Well one of the things I would say in partial defence of him Quinns assiduously do stay within the salary cap and they have not spent as much money 
as other clubs. That has necessarily meant he hasn't quite got the caliber of players that other people have been able to buy. But more importantly, I think a lot of the Quinn's Academy players, and they have produced a lot and are still doing, have either been injured or don't seem to have come forward as much as they promised. Yeah, and I think that sometimes can be cyclical, can't it, in terms of your academy. You know, all clubs have got good academies, very competitive. And sometimes, you know, your academy produces players who are exceptional and they go on. Quinns seem to have just sort of gone off the boil a little bit. We're probably going off the boil when Connor left. Um, maybe Connor saw something. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Connor fancied a change. He'd, Ciao. he'd yep. done a great job. Obviously, won won the Premiership with with Quinns uh, in two thousand and twelve. Was it? I think I can't remember the exact exact year. But and and it's it just feels like it's sort of treading water a little bit as a club. Um, they've had a lot of injuries this year as well, which which. Most clubs do have, so you've got to be careful you don't use that as an excuse. Um, and yeah, maybe they maybe they haven't spent to the levels of other clubs. Um, doesn't always solve all of the problems. But, you know, clearly there is something wrong yeah. in, the, in the system and the setup. We know we've got a Nick Easter, relatively new, and the same for Nick Evans in terms of coaching, but other people there... I suppose it will depend on who they get into replace John and what sort of scope they give him in terms of who he wants to retain in his coaching staff. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that uh, as as is often the case with with clubs at the moment, and has been for some time actually. Uh, you know, I think there's very few sort of last last men standing from an English perspective. Yeah. You know. Jim Mallander went earlier in the season. Um, Rob Baxter's obviously standing and doing a great job. Dino, our old mate, is still still standing and, and doing a terrific job up at Newcastle. But you wouldn't be surprised if if they go overseas. Um, and there was talk um, when Connor left that they were going to go overseas and, and, and leave no stone unturned to bring in the best man for the job. All sorts of names were being mentioned. Wayne Smith has won. Wayne's name comes up nearly every, every time, time yes. a job. Um, and they didn't do that. Whether that's because, I think they will this time. Well, I think so. And I think, you know, whether they couldn't find the right man at the time and, and Kingo got the job partly because there was nobody else and they went back onto the let's go from within. Uh, and going from within, it's like, it's like all sports, all of these things. It's, all, it's the right decision when you win. When, it's a, when it doesn't work, then... You know, the guy wasn't the right man to step up or we should have gone overseas. Uh, I'm sure they will go overseas. I'd be amazed. I mean, the final point I would make on this is that if they don't do that, I think a lot of supporters will question their ambition. That might not be right, but I think that will be the case. Somewhere else that's caught, obviously, management problems. Gaffney is there at the end of the season at Northampton. But when you're shipping 238 points in four meetings, albeit against Sarries, you know, that's just simply not acceptable, is it? Well, it's 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 quite remarkable, actually, and it goes right back to the first game of the season. Yeah. Um, and they've never really recovered from that, actually. And the, again, they've been a club probably just on the slide for, for a number of years now. And whether it's because coaches are there too long um, whether it's because coaches haven't made changes, head coaches haven't changed their coaching staff, or 
They've got complacent. The players have got complacent. It's a very, very competitive world, the Premiership in rugby. Um, and it's very easy and happening quicker, I think, when teams go off the boil. And if you don't stay ahead of it, we've seen it in the football world as well. You know, yeah. if teams don't stay uh, ahead, keep moving forward with their coaches or, or with their players, ambition within the within the board, people come past you very quickly. And it feels to me like those two clubs have, have sort of just maybe been a bit complacent over a number of years. And then suddenly you look in the wing mirror and it's too late because the, the cars coming up are coming yeah. past you. And Exeter is one of those sides that have managed to adapt. We're going to speak to Don Armand later, so we won't go much further yet. Dylan Hartley is in a doubt for the South Africa tour. The Saints say they're not putting a time frame on his return from concussion. And if he doesn't go, bearing in mind the amount of time he's had off and the lack of form he's shown, well, Eddie Jones seems to be very loyal to him, but there has to come a point at which, you know, I think the, um, he, he's got to make a tough decision there. Yeah, and it may be made for him. You know, if yep. concussion takes Dylan out of the picture, which would be absolutely the right thing to do if, if that is the medical decision, we can't get involved in that, then he may be forced and will be forced, as he was a bit during the Six Nations, to go with, with um, you know, whoever he feels is his <laughs> second choice. We're still not quite sure on that. That really, um, but you know, it, it, yeah, it, the, Dylan, Dylan has sort of almost been a bit of a symptom of, of the of the whole Northampton. It just he hasn't got any, you know, runs in his in his yeah. game. He just hasn't played enough, has he? And and it doesn't matter who you are at this top level now, whatever sport you're in, if you don't have you know the miles in your legs or or whatever the runs in the bag. He just can't turn it on, and and he hasn't really had much form. Eddie does. Eddie's become very loyal, and and you know sometimes coaches can get too close and too loyal as well, and that's another area that that coaches often fall down. Well, Leicester have moved into third, timing their run again. Bath now look outside uh, an outside bet uh, for the Champions Cup. Um, Sale beat Wasps. Uh, Wasps. Miss the playoffs? Yeah, well, they're just faltering a little bit, mm. a little bit hot and cold. And I think that that race for, um, you know, one and two, I think, are set. The race for three, four, five, six, um, three, four in particular, uh, it, it probably will go down to the wire. And, you know, sides that come with this late charge, as Leicester have started to do and often do do, um, could pip, you know, Wasps could miss out. I mean, mm. I don't think they will, but but it's, it's getting very tight for those third and fourth places. Well, Dennis Solomona was banned for four weeks for a homophobic slur, and he misses the rest of the main season. The club statement read, although disappointed, Dennis Solomona and the club have accepted the four-week ban handed down to Danny for conduct prejudicial to the interests of the union or the game. Uh, as accepted a matter of fact that he did uh, say what he said, uh, no room for that. Quite justified. Interesting defence, because um, I presume uh, we can bleep this out, but he said, I didn't mean to call him that, I meant to call him a <laughs> which is quite strange if you ask me. Um, it's not necessarily the route I would have gone down. Can we give Bristol plaudits for securing promotion? 60.17 winners against Nottingham. 
Time now to focus on Exeter, and I'm very pleased to say we can speak to the Exeter and England flanker, captain for Sunday's thumping against uh, Gloucester, Don Armand. Hello, Don. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. That's all right, mate. Um, all you need to do is win at London Irish, then you've got the playoffs at home. Confident? Uh, you've got to say we're confident, but I mean, London Irish also, they're, they're fighting for, for a lot there, so yeah, I think it'll be an interesting match. Jack Noel comes back. He's not played since December. He uh, gets two tries and man of the match. Uh, a remarkable performance. What do you make of it? Oh, yeah, it was. I mean, he doesn't normally score tries and then he comes and scores two <laughs> in one game. So, you know, he's, he, he, I thought he played very well. I just, I couldn't believe it, the second try that he scored there. I mean, I don't understand yeah. how, <laughs> how we got over the line, how we got out the tackle and everything. But, you know, that's, that's, that's why it makes him so special. Yeah. Hi, Don. It's Rob here. Um, it's it's very interesting, um, obviously watching Jack. Uh, I mean, he, he's, he's I think he's been a terrific player for for some years now since he came through this sort of age group system. His ability to to beat the, the first tackler in particular um, is amazing. Um, you obviously yeah. got an incredible spirit down there, um, and, and obviously I think Eddie Jones was there keeping an eye on um, not only Jack but I suspect yourself as well. Um, but, but I, I, what seems to come across from the outside with with Exeter is such a such a spirit and such an enthusiasm um, to to fight and play with with massive enthusiasm and and I suspect I don't know some teams look tired at this time of year and and for the last few years you guys haven't you've gone in the other direction. Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a drive and enthusiasm that's been there from even before I got to Chiefs. Um, it's part of the culture, you know, the guys, the youngsters that were there that have kind of grown into their roles in the team and everything have brought their culture up with them. Um, <clears throat> and I think coupled with the way Rob, Rob backs the coaches in terms of, you know, the principles of hard work always being there and showing your emotion out in the field. I think those are the things that kind of really lend, lend us strength towards the end of the season where, like you say, some teams look tired, whereas we, we kind of look like we, we're, we're still sticking with it. Don, there are a couple of technical points I want. There are both forwards points, obviously, because uh, yeah. that's all I know about Rob's giggling now. Uh, two points. Um, Exeter, unlike a lot of teams, including England, seem to know how to drive malls. Uh, and also, your breakdown work you know, is very good. Is there anything special you do about that? Or is it a matter of repetition? Uh, I, 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 it could be rep, repetition, reputation. Um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. I mean... Mm. Any team should be able to drive. It's not. It's not the hardest thing to do, is it? It's, no, it's not. I think some. A lot of the media that I've, I follow, rugby media, is, is technically legal, legal obstruction, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, I think it's just it's kind of a mindset thing that we've got going, um, and it's it's working for us. And in terms of breakdowns, I, th- I suppose the same kind of thing, you know, because without the breakdown, um, you know, your your game will go you'll go, you'll go downhill. Um, you got into the uh, England camp. Was it what was it like uh, compared to what you expected? Pretty spot on to what I expected, to be honest. Because um, obviously I've been involved the, the previous year in the Argentina yeah. camp. Um, it was just different in terms of the personnel there. Okay. There's more of the senior guys, um, obviously the guys that went away from with the Lions. Um, so it's good to get to know those kind of guys and see how they interact with the coach and everything. But it was good to see that there was a lot of um, similarities with. Within the camp, when I arrived there the second time and the first time, and you know, there's a lot of consistency, which is good. Just picking up on what I know, Brian. Brian only knows about forwards play, but but <laughs> clearly, clearly down at Exeter, you do 
you do those forward things really well and, and are really well look really well drilled. When you get close to the try line, you know, you invariably score, get over the line. Um, but you've also got a really good balance to the way the team plays um, in, in terms of using the backs as well. And the forwards are very comfortable with the ball in hand. And yeah. it, it, it's sort of from, again, it's just from the outside, there, there seems to be a really good balance to the way Exeter are set up to play. Possibly possibly as good a balance as, as any side in the Premiership um, in terms of how you can play or how you choose to play on any given day. And the whole squad seems pretty comfortable that you can, you've got plan A, B and C, it seems. Um, and, and there's a, a real comfort in that. And that's not an easy thing to establish as a club. No, I think, I think that was something that was kind of in the pipeline or kind of established when I got there. Um, you know, it was a big thing, big emphasis on forwards being able to play the same as backs to in terms of their handling skills and everything. And I certainly, that was a big difference from when I came over from South African club to here um, was the fact that they, the coaches had this expectation of forward being able to, to handle the ball any, anywhere in the field. Um, and I think a big thing is, like you say, our forwards uh, do a lot of graft, but we've got a dangerous back line. And you know, sometimes when we're not necessarily hitting all our straps, they, they're the guys that are really turning up the heat. And I think it, it gives a lot of confidence to both forwards and backs when we, you know, you see them playing well or vice versa. Um, I think that's probably why we click as, as a unit as a 15. Don, last time I spoke to you about England, um, you hadn't been included uh, in the squad and you said to me that Eddie Jones had given you a couple of pointers on what you needed to uh, work on. What was the feedback this time? Did you get any? Um, it was a bit more, I mean, there were, obviously you get feedback, but it's more work on going forward, you know, because they were saying there's the the potential to go on the South African tour. Um, he'll still be watching us play. Um, and it was kind of, it was kind of pretty similar stuff. Um, and then, you know, kind of weekly, you, you'll get maybe things that they think that you did well, or you didn't do well in the games and, and let you know where to focus your efforts. But, you know, it's not, there's nothing drastic in terms of my work on this. It's kind of just make sure that you keep playing well and you, you stand a chance to be selected. Well, um, Ben Teo and Mike Brown told us that Eddie's always watching and texting. Um, have you have you had a, have you had the quarter past four in the morning text yet? <laughs> no, not yet. Um, we no, I, I haven't had that yet. Luckily, <laughs> or luckily or unluckily, I'm not sure which way to look at that. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I I think you're almost certain to uh, go to South Africa. How realistic do you think your chances are of nailing the? The seventh jersey. Uh, to be honest, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of talented um, players that could be playing in that seven jersey, or any of the you know in the back row. If you look across the Premiership, guys that maybe not getting as much you know spotlight attention um, that could play just as well, if not better, in that position. So you know, I don't I don't know if it's it's safe to say that I would I'd be selected on that interview at all, let alone securing that seven jersey. Um, but I think that's probably one of the benefits to England rugby is seeing how much strength and depth there is, um, and and how much competition you know there is for each position, which is probably is a good thing in the end. Um, a lot of people have said that you look classically like a number six. I've been pointing out actually, you've been playing seven for quite a long time, and it doesn't seem to me that the skills for a seven uh, escape you. Does does it frustrate you that people don't see you as an out and out open side, even though you are 
playing your trade there? Uh, no, not at all, to be honest. Um, I mean, there's the, the, the roles have changed a lot since I've started playing rugby or seen the professional era in terms of what a six looks like and what a seven looks like. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty versatile in my positional play. And, you know, I would probably agree in some some um, aspects with what a traditional seven would look like to some people. And, you know, you can't argue with it. Um, but, you know, it's it's a position that I'm comfortable playing. So is six, um, you know, anywhere across the back row, really. Um, but, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. If they don't think I'm an out-and-out seven, that, that honestly, it doesn't bother me. Um, yeah. Uh, well, look, I think what, what you've done as, a, as an individual, what the club are doing, I mean, to see you sat at the top of the premiership uh, from where the club has come from. I think I was there in 2007 when the ground was opened, when England A played Italy A. Um, so you must be really looking forward to the end of the season. Uh, you, you won't say it, Brian and I can say it. I'm pretty sure you'll be going to South Africa. You probably enjoy that um, and, and good luck with that. Well, if that does happen, thanks very much. But yes, I mean, everyone's looking forward towards the, I suppose, the business end of the season, um, especially from a club point of view. It'll be really interesting to see if we can, if we can be double champs or defend our defend our title. Yeah. Well, best of luck, Don. Um, and if we don't speak to you before you get to South Africa, because <laughs> we know you're on the plane. Uh, <laughs> best of luck with that as well. Thanks very much, guys. Exeter are given as the example by every. One who puts forward the argument that you can't have anything but seamless promotion and relegation, and yet they are such an exception, uh, and that flies in the face of actual reality and actual uh, investment and so on. And I get frustrated by that, not because Exeter have done particularly well, but when I hear, oh, it'd be great if so-and-so came up or so-and-so, and I say, well, they haven't even got a stand. And, that, you know, no. and, and you say there is investment there. How much is there? Because we both know you can't have a couple of million. You've got to have 20, 30 million now. It, the Exeter story is, is magnificent. There's absolutely no question. And then Tony Rowe uh, and, and, and his team around him, he's got, he's got some great pals who are, are sort of run the club with him. It's a bunch mm-hmm. of mates, really, who, who've been Exeter through and through for, for donkey's years. Um, probably more years than they would like to remember. Um, they were, they've been very clever in the way they've done it. You know, they took the money out of the old ground, the old uh, Greyhound uh, ground they had in the middle of Exeter. Yeah. You, you may have played there. I did not, play there, yes. Not, a, not the greatest place. No. Nope. But, but they took the money. Um, they invested it in Sandy Park. They built, a, they built a, a rugby business and a non-rugby business out at Sandy Park. It's it's in that part of the country as we all know, Devon, Cornwall, that um, didn't have that place for the locals to go to. In our day, they all had to go up the road to Bath. So Graham Dor, yep. your best friend Graham Dor, would drive three hours up to training at Bath on a Tuesday night, and then drive back to the farm for three hours, and did that three times a week because yep. there was nowhere else for the the Devonians and the and the and the uh, Cornishmen to to make their home in that part of the, the country. And it's just been a very cleverly constructed business model, rugby model, um, that I'm not sure that can be done anywhere else in the country. Mm. So that for those that say, well, it can happen somewhere else, well, where, to be honest? Exactly. Well, let's move on now to the Greenwich Pro 14. Uh, I'm really pleased to say we can uh, speak to Rory Lawson, the former Scotland and Abra scrum half. He was pundit 
for the Scarlets versus Glasgow game. Hello, Rory. Hi, Brian. Hello, mate. Can I, first of all, ask you to decipher the playoff system for the Guinness Pro 14? Because Rob and I are struggling a bit. That's probably our fault. But uh, is it straightforward? It's fairly straightforward. It's not that um, dissimilar to the barrage in the top 14 in France. Um, okay. So they'll get each conference, albeit there are two conferences. So each conference will get to the end of the season. Um, the top, the top team in each conference goes straight through to the semi-final. So Conference A and Conference B straight through to the semi-final. Second from Conference A will play third from Conference B at home, and vice versa. So second in Conference B will play third in Conference A at home. Also, the winner of that will then go to uh, away from home to play against the, the top team from the conference. Well, that looks like Edinburgh are going to make it, doesn't it? Yeah, they've, they've taken a bit of a knock, um, but they're still, in a, they're still in a good spot. I think Ulster are eight points behind them um, in fourth. So they've still got three games left. I think one of their, one of their games was postponed during the, the snow. Um, so there's there's a there's a bit of rugby still to be played. But Edinburgh will certainly need another win, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. Ulster uh, managed to to make up a bit of ground on them with their win at Murrayfield last weekend. So it's still plenty to play for um, in the in the new format for everybody. Um, but ultimately, for for a handful, their their, their season is largely over. Um, but at the same time, those those pushing for the playoffs um, all to play for. And it looks as though. The cheetahs uh, may well make it, and how important would that be uh, for the competition as a whole? Yeah, there were a number of eyebrows raised um, when, when when the two South African sides were added so late to the to make it the Pro 14 um, at the end of last season. But credit to them, they've grown into the tournament. Uh, the, the cheetahs, in particular, um, and they're now sitting pretty in third spot. The Cardiff Blues went down to Bloemfontein to play them at the weekend and they had 50 hours of travel. I know they had to sleep at the airport, didn't they? Of, yeah, it was. It, it just looked horrendous. And um, for large parts of that game, the Blues looked like they were going to nick it and they needed to because the, the Cheetahs winning that game opened up a nine-point gap between the Cheetahs and, and the Blues. It was a massive head-to-head. But it has the Cheetahs in contention for one of these quarter-final places, the playoff places as it's going to be. Um, and look, I think credit to them because they came out the back of a Curry Cup season. The squad would have been pulled to pieces with the, the inevitable losses to, to other sides um, in the off-season. But they've done incredibly well to, to pull together, make um, the, manage their home games well and, and pick up some points at home. Um, and they're now in, in a position whereby you know, coming into the end of the season, they're likely to have to travel away from home to win that playoff. But when you get to knockout rugby, anything can happen. Just philosophically, how how has the introduction of of the conference system sort of been met by the coaches and the players and the fans in terms of what it feels and looks like? Because obviously, there's a lot of debate in England at the moment around promotion relegation. Players in England having to battle on all fronts all the time. Um, and the difference that that's had with, say, the the Irish players, the Welsh players, and the Scots players, who probably are just able in this system to be able to be looked after that a little bit better. For me, something had to change in the Pro 12. Um, 
I thought that the the league had had gone a little bit stale and without the promotion relegation, I think there something something needed to change. Is the addition of these two South African sides the answer? I'm still not 100 percent sure, um, but certainly when you look at I guess the success, the, the Irish provinces are a perfect example. Um, but at the same time, I do believe that the qualification for Europe means that the, the, the teams have to put out as strong a team as they can more often than they did in the previous format. Yeah. Yeah. In the past, it was, I think it was the top three Irish sides, the top three Welsh sides, the top Italian side, and the top Scottish side were guaranteed to go through to to Europe, um, albeit, as well as top six went through to Europe, and then typically you had an Italian that was making up seventh. So it's uh, I think it's the, the the teams have had to adjust to the new format, um, but it does certainly does favour sides who are attacking on on two fronts. Um, Scarlets and uh, Leinster, there's a four point gap between them, and obviously you'd prefer to be. Uh, number one, and win uh, your conference. Scarlets are frightening on two fronts. Can they, can they possibly do both, or is it going to be a, a distraction and one maybe too far? Look, I spoke to, I spoke to Ken Owens and uh, Scott Williams and Rob Evans after the game on, on Saturday there, as well as, well as John Barkley. Um, and they, they're taking it game by game. It's, it is a little bit cliched, but at the same time, you can totally understand it. It'll be interesting to see the side that they pick to go up to Edinburgh to play on Saturday afternoon, uh, because they, they they are preparing for the biggest the biggest game they've had in a long long time away um, in Dublin in the semi final of Europe. So they will be looking to pick up a win in Edinburgh. However, they can manage that, and um, I would be surprised to see the likes of Hadley Parks and Ken Owens on that team sheet. I think um, Wayne Pivak will probably pick a side who he thinks can go up there and manage to cut out a win, pick up something up, up in Edinburgh and give themselves that, that platform to then kick on and, and go into Europe. But they made it very clear. It's, it's a season whereby Wayne Pivak targeted the defence of the Pro 14 at the very start of the season. I doubt they would have expected to be in a European semi-final, but now that they're there, they're they're backing themselves to go all the way. And um, on their day, they can certainly knock the majority of teams over. Uh, also, just look at what a great reflection of the Pro 14. Whatever people might have said about it and going to conferences, three of the four semi-finalists in in Europe in in sat in in the top spots: um, Munster, Leinster, and Scarlets. Um, Fantastic achievement. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, and I have to, uh, you know, I have to say, when you consider the, the, the player management is something um, in in Ireland, but at the same time, you've got to go out and you've got to win against big, big European teams. And for me, the Champions Cup, since it, since they reduced the teams from twenty four to twenty, has just become so so tough. And you yes. look at some of the groups that the teams have have managed to, to wriggle out of. Leinster is, I guess, the prime example and sums up the quality of them. You had um, you had Leinster in that group with Exeter, Premiership champions, Glasgow, who are typically fighting at the top of the, the Celtic League at Pro 12 as it was last season, and Montpellier, who are towards the top end of the top 14. So to get out of that group, 
um, was was a significant effort. Um, and but we all know now that particularly uh, you know Munster and Leinster, probably Leinster being favourites, are very used to this knockout European rugby um, and are, are justifiably favourites for me going into the semi-finals. How confident are you that Glasgow will take number one spot in their conference? Yeah, I think they'll be okay. They're, I think they're at home to Connacht next weekend, um, and that's one that they'll target. They're, they're still quite a long way ahead. I think that, that win would confirm their top spot yeah. uh, going, and, and, and a home semi-final, uh, which for them is, is, is so important. They were, they were very disappointing at Parky Scarlet's on Saturday. Uh, they looked rusty. A few of the guys coming back from Scotland duty um, were, certainly weren't at their best. Finn Russell was dragged at half-time, um, albeit Ryan Wilson had a very strong second half. Stuart Hoggs was was always lively, um, and they'll be they'll be very keen to start building some momentum uh, going into the the final stages of the Pro 14 now. And it's, it's a it's a title that ever since being knocked out of Europe, they've been very very keen on targeting, um, and they'll be they'll be keen on finishing with a big big end to the season. Rory, always good to speak to you. Thank you very much. Great stuff. Thanks, Brian. Time now to speak to Nigel Owens about all things to do with rugby's laws. Hello, Nigel. Brian, how are you? Okay, a couple of things. Uh, Craig Thomas has tweeted in. Are rugby's rules too complex now? An example, in a recent match I saw, a defending player in a post-line-out mall, he had his arms around the player who had the ball, was penalised for detaching and reattaching. Why can't he just adjust and compete for the ball? Right. Um, before I get shot down by fellow referees, <laughs> the laws of the game, not the rules, but never mind about that. Um, I'm not quite sure what, what, what the question is there regarding the line. So well, the, what, he, what he's saying is, why can't he just grapple wherever you end up, I think? Um, and, uh, is know, he talking about the defending side or the attacking side? He's talking side? about the defending side. Right. Um, so the defending side, a mall is formed, most of the time is formed uh, from a line-out. So once the mall is formed... Everybody then who joins that mall must join behind or alongside their hindmost player in that mall. If you're already in that mall or you join behind the hindmost mall, you can work yourself through the middle of that mall. And if you work yourself through the middle of that mall, you can then detach and reattach because you're going through the middle of it. What you can't do is detach on the side and then grab onto the next player up and detach onto him, and then do the same thing and move on to the next player, because then you are breaking your bind, and if you break your bind, you must then re-enter from the onside line, which is the highmost feet, unless you are in that mall, because if you're in that mall in the middle of it, then you are part of that mall in a setup. so when you detach and you're fighting your way through, you're not detaching from the mall, you're still in the mall. Whereas if you're on the side of it and you detach, you then detach from the mall, and to rejoin it, you must rejoin behind the highmost, my highmost. Is that what some referees call swimming? That's, that's, that's exactly it. That's the, the swimming action, if you like. So if you imagine you're doing the swinging action through the middle of the mall, mm-hmm. where you're in the mall, so you're not detaching from the mall itself, mm-hmm. so your actions are legal. But if you're doing it to the side of the mall, swimming alongside it, when you break off one player, immediately as you break it off him, 
before you bind on the other player, you're actually now detaching from the mall. And when you detach from the mall, you can just not you can't rejoin it from that position. You must rejoin it from behind the onside line, which is your hindmost man in that mall. So basically that that, that law is is quite simple, really, although the mall is a very, very difficult area of the game to referee at the moment. Um, I would go as far as to say it's probably one of the most difficult areas because sometimes in those malls set up from line-outs, you probably have 14, 16, 17, 18 players maybe in that mall. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, 14, 15, 16 players in that mall. And to see you watch every single one of them, does somebody collapse it? Does somebody grab somebody's legs? Does somebody swim up on the side? Does somebody enter from the side? Uh, is it taken down with the attacking side, which is legal, versus to the defending side, which is illegal? There's so many things. Do, do they shear off and form another mall of a struct because the ball is at the front? Or do they shear off because the defending side has split them all? There's so many things. It's a very, very difficult area of the game to referee at the moment. Um, does, that, does that suggest that too complex? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Nigel. I've, 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 I've stood, I used to stand and fly off watching all this damn it's stuff actually quite, go on. It's quite simple, Nigel. I, I understand it. But then I'm a forward. So I understand technical things. Um, let me raise this with you. Um, Austin Healy had a, com, a column. I had a column uh, on... Uh, Referees and... Well, I, I would say on a referee, <laughs> not the referees. I have heard, yes. Oh, yes. Um, and I was simply saying that the default position in football is to blame officials all the time. Because it's much easier than looking at yourself or your players or whatever. Uh, I know you can't say this, but I thought that the World Rugby clarification on individual decisions for some referees was actually terrible. And that if there were going to be uh, any sanctions or any uh, action that should be taken through the normal channels um, and not uh, in public, because it only uh, actually encourages people then to start doing things. And, I, and I, you may not have noticed this, but I am increasingly seeing this. If you talk to players with first names, and you don't know everyone's first name, and you certainly sometimes don't know a language. A lot of referees have said to me, well, they all speak English, a lot of them playing, one of you. But how do you counter then the allegation um, that a decision which is totally uh, subjective and completely honest mm. is down to you being over-familiar with one side and not the other? That's, that's a very good point you, you raise with, with value points. That the two things for me there is, is this, and I'm talking from, from a personal point of mm -hmm. refereeing now. I will, I will never speak to individuals in names when I'm refereeing the game. So if, yeah. when the game is going ahead, I won't call players by their names. I won't say, John, get out of there, so-and-so, get out of there, or will move away, whatever the name may be. I never do that because I don't think that is, is, is right personally, and that's my style of refereeing. And the only times I will speak to players name-wise is the two captains, because obviously you should know the two captains' names, and if you don't know one's captain name because you're refereeing the team for the first time, for example, and you don't know the captain, then you either find out his name or you don't address the other player by his name and not him. Or if I'm speaking, if I want to speak to the, to the two scrum halves, for example, um, I would say, Rory, come here, please. 
Austin, come here, please. So you would speak to the two of them the same. Or if I'm speaking, for example, let's say I'm on the kickoff and you're asking the outside half individually, but it doesn't concern anybody else which way you're kicking, but then I would make sure that I would do the same with the opposition outside half as well. And that's only fair. So you have a very, very value point there because if you don't know the names of all the players in the teams, then you should not be using names of some and not the others. So my point would be this. I would only use the name of the two players in that position if I needed to speak to them, for example, uh, or if I was speaking to the captain and I'm speaking to the other captain, or if I was speaking to an individual which does not concern anybody else. You stop the game and you want to speak to a player, then you may call him over because you're only speaking to him and nobody else is involved in that conversation. Then possibly then you'd use a first name term. But those are the only times. And I think it's a value point that you raise up there. And, and that is the way, my way of refereeing the game. So if I do use a name of a player... I'm not knowing the other name of a player, then, then I'd be wrong to do that. And if that does happen, then it is it's a genuine mistake in the game. And I tend not to do that, or certainly try not to do that. OK, and let's leave it at this, Nigel. You're not a celebrity, but you are a Panto star. So that's quite good. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> good. <laughs> oh, how did I know you were going to say? Thank you, Nigel. Pleasure, as always, Brian. Bye-bye. Time now to discuss the women's game and the fact that we are very close to the final. The playoffs are going on. At the moment, if you didn't know the scores, they were as follows. Saracens, 10 tries, 62 nil over Gloucester Hartbury at Hartbury College. And uh, Wasps were beaten 19-25 uh, by Quinns. I'm very pleased to say we can speak to the Wasps coach now, Giselle Mather. Hello, Giselle. Hello, Brian. How are you? Uh, I'm OK. How are you feeling more to the point? Because uh, you made a flying start. Um against Quinns, uh, uh-huh. didn't quite get there in the end. No, um, it's it's a fascinating situation for us because to play um, 160 minutes of rugby to uh, to get through to the final is a new challenge for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a bit of a strange feeling at the 80-minute uh, mark that only technically counts as half-time. So to go, we've not yet beaten Queen, Quinns this season, so to go into half-time, 26, uh, sorry, 25-19 down, I'm reasonably comfortable with. Where are you going to have to improve if you are to overturn that deficit? Um, we got cleaned out of line-out, to be fair. Um, they have some fabulous, uh, Debbie McCormack, um, fabulous line-out jumpers, and they read us very well, and we need to really sharpen up in that area, um, which meant that we lost um, key field positions um, and so weren't able to launch attacks from where we wanted to on the field. Um, but it's it's doable. Um, it needs to be a, a much bigger concentration area there and to actually play what we practice. Um, and the girls have taken that on board. I think there's a general feeling that the game is still massively on. Um, and that's really, really exciting. And it's great for the women's game because it was a, a really good game of rugby that ebbed and flowed. They were 17-7 up at one point and then we went with two tries to 19-17. And so that's, it was entertaining for everyone that was there. And we think that we'll hopefully be able to produce that at the Stoop, a very entertaining game of rugby. Uh, home advantage is uh, a huge thing in the uh, men's game. Um, how important, relatively, is it in the, in the women's playoffs? Um, from our point of view, we love playing at home. It's only Quinns that have beaten us there this season. Um, but the girls are very, very excited to have the opportunity to play at the Stoop. So it, it's not going to be as big a situation as, as you might think because the, you know, the, the excitement of playing in the stadium 
for them, um, they're really, really looking forward to. So I don't see it as a major advantage on their front at all, really. One of the things that you're normally uh, celebrating tries, but what mm-hmm. about that 90, was it 95 yards that Daniel yeah. Waterman tracked back yeah. to, to tackle a it was, player? It was incredible because uh, Fiona Pocock is, is also very, very quick. Yeah. Um, and she took an interception from us five metres from their line. So it should have been our try. And then all of a sudden she's blistering away and Nolly just took off. And there's like 50 yards of... of um, where it stayed the same and then you see her gaining and it got more and more exciting and then she's she is a phenomenal tackler anyway and her technique to, to bring Fee down was amazing. Unfortunately after that she wasn't aware that both our other wingers had also worked incredibly hard on either side and she dived over the top to get the ball and ended up with a yellow card. So <laughs> for all of her efforts it was a touch I, I, I'm not disputing the yellow card at all but it was a real shame because the effort that she put in but it was one of the magical moments of the game. Hi, Giselle. Um, Hi, Rob. How, um, can anybody beat Saracens, um, given the scoreline in the other game and obviously some of the players they've got and the form they seem to be showing? Um, it's, it's an interesting question because I feel really sorry for Gloucester Hartley, but they've had the, the run-in. They've played Quinns um, and just beat them. They played Saris and drew with them. Um, and I think those two massive games in the two, three weeks before playoffs probably took it out of their girls. From our point of view, we're the side that have beaten Saracens um, and Quinns have beaten Saracens. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting game. You have to front up physically against them. And my understanding is that that didn't happen at the weekend. Um, and I know they'll be very disappointed about that. But uh, you have to front up against their back row because that's where they're immensely powerful and strong. Yeah, and that's sort of touching on Marley Packer there in terms of... Are you a bit surprised she's not with the, uh, the Sevens squad? Um... Not really. I think ultimately Molly is a 15s player um, and, you know, is world class at 15s. So I think yeah, you know, she's perfectly capable of playing the sevens, but I think that she is absolutely world class as a sevens player. As a, sorry, as a 15s player. And so, no, I, I would say that she's, she's in the best place to, to show her talent. Um, what do you think of the forthcoming Commonwealth Games? How are England set? They're very excited. They look in a very good place. Um, they've, they've trained incredibly hard for it. Um, and I, I think they've got a good opportunity to do really well. They are, they're, you know, a, a blend of youth and experience, um, which is always fantastic. And they have worked incredibly hard for it. Uh, I wish them all the best. I think that they will go very well. Well, unlike a lot of things in the Commonwealth Games, you're going to have two of the top teams there as well, though, aren't you? So as opposition, if they do pull that off, I think... Um, they can be well satisfied with that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if, if they come away with the gold medal from that, that's a, a phenomenal achievement. Um, and, but it's, it's a very good challenge for them. Um, and obviously in the World Series, it's, a, it's an extra round that obviously doesn't have the same as every, every other team, but it's a, a fabulous platform and it's great, to, again, to see Sevens in that environment. Giselle, thank you very much for speaking to us. Best of luck uh, in the rest of the season. Thank you very much. Rob, the battle for the playoffs and Champions Cup places. Leicester, we've got Saints, Falcons, Sale, Wasps, Worcester, Saints, Falcons, Falcons, Sale, Leicester, Wasps, Sale, Falcons, Exeter, Leicester, Gloucester, Quinns, Bath, Sarries, Bath, Sarries, Gloucester, London Irish. If you're looking at those, which is the easier running, do you think? And which two teams are likely to make it? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that anybody... I mean, Leicester have got 
Saints, Wasps have got Worcester, who are down at the bottom and fighting. Uh, Falcons and Sale have both got fairly similar and, and pretty tough run-ins. Um, Leicester and Wasps are in third and fourth. Um, three matches to play. Probably theirs to lose the third and fourth spots. And Newcastle and Sale have got to chase and, and do the catching. And Newcastle and Sale play each other. So that means, you know, there's... So you probably look at it and go, it's really down to it's down to Leicester and Wasps to lose mm. those playoff spots, probably. And for Newcastle and Sale to obviously try and get into third and fourth, but to hang on to those European spots, which in itself for Sale and Falcons would be a would be a fantastic achievement. It would be. And um for Falcons, what you've got to say is that because they have to play Leicester and Wasps. Those fixtures, if they were to win them, you know that's destiny, so to speak, in their own hands, and not relying then on anyone else winning or losing. You know, if they do the business in those games, then it's theirs. Well, and and they would fully deserve they would, to yes. be in the top four yeah. if they can knock over Leicester and Wasps. They're possibly just tiring a bit. I don't know. Even Dean admitted at the weekend that they've not been playing as well in the last few weeks. They're still in Europe as well, so they've got that maybe as a distraction. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I Do you would... think they would swap um, a Champions Cup place for winning the trophy? Yeah, I think so, to be honest. Um, you know, Champions Cup is is, is massive for, for the clubs. Um, I mean, pretty tough to be in there. You need a pretty strong squad. Yeah. And as we talked earlier with Rory, you know, the... The groups are brutal, um, so you know I think they would swap. I think they would they would love to be in the Champions Cup, even more so if they could finish in the top four. I mean they've not been in the top four, um, well they've not been in the playoffs uh, in, the, in the whole time the playoffs have been, actually been in in place. Silverware versus Champions Cup stroke Champions League. It's the perennial debate. That's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact. Thank you to my co-host Rob Andrew and as always my producer Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because, after all, it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find this podcast. We'll be back next week. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye.